The planet's puppet masters almost surely have a plan This clearly may be something near beyond the realm of man And until you thoroughly tested every last close trusted view I find the more you think you know, the less you really do That's true, Dr. Zayas Where would we be without THC? Side chatters, we have seen many strange and sad events since 9-11 that seem to fit the false flag template, but what's even more strange is the suggestion of a full-blown simulation in some of these active shooter situations we've been shown by the media. Of these events, there is none more divisive and irregular than what took place at Sandy Hook Elementary on December 14, 2012, and when you start looking into the details, you find so many holes and irregularities that you're forced to wrestle with the possible conclusion that this event was more stagecraft than shooting. Of course, I'm no expert, but luckily, people, today we do have one in our midst, and his name is Wolfgang Halbig, and I can think of no one more qualified to give their analysis of a school shooting than him. Mr. Halbig is the former executive director of the National Institute for School and Workplace Safety and has worked in public education as a teacher, dean, assistant principal, principal, and director of an alternative school, and is the director for school safety and security of the Seminole County Public School System a school district of approximately 65,000 students. Mr. Halbig also has law enforcement experience as a former Florida State Trooper in Miami and as a United States Customs Inspector. That is no small resume, and when his job has been to prepare schools and public places for exactly these types of situations, and he says something's off, I think we owe it to him to listen. Unfortunately, in the years since speaking out about these events, Wolfgang has had his life turned upside down and his family threatened just for asking basic questions, seeking out records that should be public, and looking for explanations to why traditional protocols he's professionally familiar with were not followed in this case. Folks, we have him here at a very crucial time, hot off the heels of our good friend Marty Leeds' documentary about him entitled Dear Wolfgang, and just as he's preparing for the culmination of his ongoing legal battle as he's currently being sued by Leonard Posner, the supposed parent of Noah Posner, one of the alleged victims at Sandy Hook. Well, I couldn't be happier to have him here to tell his story and hopefully drum up some support for a good truth-seeking guy in a really rough position. Wolfgang Halbig, my man, welcome to the higher side. Well, Greg, I really, really appreciate you inviting me to your program and I really hope that both of us can open some eyes in your program today, because if we don't come together, if we don't look at this and come together as a country, I think we're headed into some serious, serious trouble. Mm, That is so true. And I'm really happy to be able to talk to you. I have followed your story wherever I could. And Marty's documentary also really did a great job of bringing me up to date. And to get us started, I hoped you could elaborate on your background a little bit more because it is so important for people to realize you're not just some armchair researcher. You're not just some YouTube guy. You're a lifelong professional working directly in the nexus of law enforcement and schooling. So, you know, maybe you shouldn't be dismissed as easily as the mainstream media would like us to think, huh? Since you brought that up, the mainstream media, how is it? that not one of them, NBC, ABC, CNN, you name them, why have they not allowed me to come on and be interviewed and look at some of these reasonable doubt that we have discovered? Why is it the national news media is afraid of me? Mm. I just don't understand it. You know, right. I thought they were all about the truth. And I, I've learned in the last four years that <laughs> they're just exactly the opposite. Mm-hmm. And this has been a lot of trouble and headache for you. I mean, you've been very persistent in your pursuit of the truth in this situation, but how has it affected your life and the lives of your family? Well, it's basically destroyed my family. It's destroyed my business. I had a business called Children's Safety Institute, and this is helping school districts, um, teachers, parents, children with autism. We developed a product. We developed a brand new training program. It was a $5 million business. And these people have attacked my investors. They attacked my credibility. And Greg, I would have never, I want want your listeners to really, really understand that. I'm 71 years old. 
I want to play with my grandkids. Is this something I want to do? Absolutely, yes, now I do. When you send two homicide investigators from the Lake County Sheriff's Office in a county that where I live in, when you send them to my home two weeks before Christmas and they threaten me. Now, they're in my home and I used to be a state trooper, customs agent, and they tell me that if I do not immediately stop asking questions about Sandy Hook, I was going to go to jail. Now, they're in my home. I invited them in. I allowed them in. And they're threatening me. And then when I asked the question, well, who called you? Well, we're not allowed to tell you. Well, who has the authority to call a sheriff of a county from out of state to have them send two homicide investigators that threaten me? Who has that authority to do that? I mean, I don't understand. That's what got me riled up. I'm a naturalized U.S. citizen. I believe in freedom of speech. I believe that we, all of us, not Wolfgang, not just you, we should question things that we think are not proper or something doesn't look right. And these two guys put a fire under me. And as you can see, I'm here. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is a show where we're very open to alternatives. We know we're lied to and manipulated all the time. But the idea that nobody died at Sandy Hook and it was just an illusion is still hard for some people to understand. It's a lot to wrap your head around. What was your first reaction to Sandy Hook when you saw the events unfold that day? Well, you know, in the first 10 days when I heard breaking news, they had me hooked. And in the first 10 days, you know, my family, we sent a check to Newtown, the town of Newtown, because I wanted to help with the mental health issues I know what it's like observing Columbine in Jonesboro, Virginia Tech. It's going to take money to heal a community. I didn't hesitate. I wrote a check. I've actually wrote a check to United Way. I wrote monies to Sandy Hook Promise. They had me hooked. And you know why? It's the emotional part of how they unfolded it. When I watched all those funerals, I watched the vigils. That's what got me is why would somebody ever, ever fake funerals? How can you have these church services? So I was hooked until I started saying, you know what? Let me take a look at my active shooter response plan that I wrote for all of the districts that have hired me. It says, what do we do in the first 10 minutes when the first 911 call comes in? What are we supposed to do? And you know what? Hmm. It didn't work. I couldn't see that happening at Sandy Hook. Right. Man, so, you know, obviously these are tough conclusions to come to, but when was it that you started to see those first red flags that something didn't add up when you waited against the plan that you've come up with in the past? You know, 10 days went by, you know, things sort of calmed down a little bit, but it they talked about it. I mean, every time you turn on the news or you read a magazine, Time People, it's all about Sandy Hook and the parents. And when I got invited by the Florida School Board Association about a month and a half after the incident, they asked me to come to Tampa, Florida and do a workshop for about 300 plus school board members on active shooter response. And so I said, yeah, I'll come. I mean, I've done it four times before when we've had shootings. So I went to Tampa. I showed them the video that I have on active shooter response, what it should look like and Boy, they couldn't get enough of it. And all of a sudden, hands go up. Mr. Halbig, Mr. Halbig, what do we do? So we don't have a Sandy Hook in our school district, in our community. And Greg, I got to tell you, there was so much misinformation, misdirection coming out of Sandy Hook via the national news media, the local television, paper. I mean, it was so confusing as to what really happened. I didn't have the answers, and I made a promise to those school board members on June 13, 2013, I'm going to find out. And when I contacted Connecticut State Police or Newtown, they all hang up on me. They refused to talk to me. And then they started putting the label on me. Instead of being the National School Safety Consultant, they changed it that I am now a conspiracy person. I mean, I, I've never looked at anything. I've never even looked at 
I'm a national school safety consultant, and Greg, I can promise you I'm good at it. So I wrote a plan back in 1994 how to respond to active shooting. It just didn't, it doesn't make any sense as to what they did. I mean, can you imagine shots fired, elementary school, little bitty tiny kids, and you think, God, they might, somebody got shot, maybe injured, and they don't even bother to request trauma helicopters to be sent to Sandy Hook. What kind of negligence is that? Please call him and get him airborne. I actually called LifeStar in Hartford, Connecticut to make sure I was not wrong. The executive director said, Mr. Halbig, we were just as disappointed as you are today. We were ready. We had three helicopters ready to go. We never, ever received that phone call. That is the trigger that got me into this investigation. Yes, and there are just so many issues here to sort through, but to refresh people's minds a bit and get into the details, can you give us some of the official basic timeline we were given as to how the events unfolded that day? Well, the breaking news you know, that morning says shots fired, elementary school. It didn't say Sandy Hook, but then as the day prolonged, you know, we started hearing, you know, the phone call came in at 9.35.43. That's the first 911 call that came in. It actually came from the secretary who worked in the front office. She supposedly dialed 911 saying, shots fired. So to me, remember now, as soon as we, we in law enforcement or paramedics, EMTs, we get that message, the clock starts ticking. What we do in that first 10 minutes is something that will save lives. Mm -hmm. I, can't, I mean, trust me, it's been proven by the FBI, Secret Service. The first 10 minutes is getting there as quick as you can, and you get in there and you neutralize the threat. That means if you have to shoot and kill whoever is doing it, you do that. But you stop the shooting no matter what. And let me tell you what. When you look at this thing, it's unbelievable. It's confusing, misdirection, misinformation. Now, it just, it's not how it should look. Right. It is very confusing. And to break it down a little bit more, let me ask you about Adam Lanza, the shooter himself, because it seems like there is little chance that he could have pulled off something like this alone. Maybe you could elaborate on the unlikelihood of that for us. Well, first of all, I mean, from everything that you know and what you've read and understand, I mean, can you tell me how Adam Lanza actually entered the school that day? Now, the media wants you to think what? That he entered the school how? Through the shot-out glass window, right? Right. But guess what? There is not one document by the Connecticut State Police, FBI, that will ever say, Greg, to you and your listeners, Adam Lanzer entered through the shot out glass window. Nobody knows how he entered the school. And then they have a Monsignor, Robert Wise. Now, he's supposed to be the truthful person in Connecticut, Newtown, Connecticut, a man that everybody trusts. He's the Catholic priest. In his documentary, Newtown, that they produced and it's all over the world, this Catholic priest comes on and says, this young man shot out the glass window. He reached inside, opened the door, and took people's lives. Now, here's a Catholic priest. Why would he say that, Greg? It's impossible. God couldn't have done what he just said. Hmm. So what made him say that in a documentary? Who wrote that script for him? And if a Catholic priest is going to lie in a documentary, I think we all better wake up. Because if you can't trust the man in Newtown, Connecticut, that we're supposed to trust and he's lying, we need to ask the questions that we're doing today. Absolutely. It seems like there are just a lot of people involved. And also, in terms of Adam Lanza, can you determine any type of motive why Adam Lanza would be used in this scenario as a sort of patsy, I guess? Or is he even a real person? See, that's the question that I'm asking under the Connecticut Freedom of Information request. They have not shown me or provided me any documents that actually show that he existed. Now, think about it. 
we're talking about Adam Lanza, does he exist? We don't even know how he got into the school. And how does a six foot, 112 pound autistic, the young man is supposed to have Asperger's, he's malnourished, Greg, by those standards. He is malnourished. And you're going to tell me that within eight minutes, he supposedly entered the school, killed 20 children, six teachers, and then took his own life within eight minutes. There isn't a Navy SEAL. There isn't a paramedic or Green Beret. And if they're listening out there, please call Greg and me and tell me that that's possible. You can't have a 96.6% kill ratio, fire 154 rounds in eight minutes. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. See, So if you've got something that's impossible, then how do we as listeners accept that as a fact? Great points. And I fired a handgun twice in my life and an AK-47 once, and it is an overwhelming experience if you don't know what you're doing. It's uh, not something you can just pick up and get the gist of right away. So that is a curious thing for anyone who has very limited experience with guns or even a lot of experience. You know that those first few times, I mean, it's not like you can just off the cuff, go in and perform some mass shooting and have it be efficient as we're told it was. But I guess he was supposed to have shot his mother before even coming to the school. Does any of that story check out at all? Can I tell you what? I don't even look at that. Mm -hmm. I'm a national school safety consultant. What I look at is from the time he stepped on any part of that school property That is where I started my investigation. What happens at the house? I think that's all misdirection. I think that's all misinformation. What happened to Gene Rosen's house? That to me, I could care less about. What I understand and what I'm good at is what happens once he drives that car into the property of the Sandy Hook Elementary School. And it just doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. When you have a witness named Barbara Sibley on National, Katie Couric says, well, when I was at the front entrance that morning, I saw a black Honda Civic with all the car doors standing wide open. Well, Greg, that's a crime scene. Who in the world would have closed all those doors? See, you have to understand how we in law enforcement deal with crime scenes. Nobody is allowed to touch that vehicle. And why would somebody go inside the vehicle and take the gun out and put it in the trunk? You're not allowed to do that. It's a crime scene. So again, that raises questions. But again, the national news media failed to do his their diligence and do their job. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. And yeah, it is definitely good to stay focused on where your expertise comes in handy. And I think when you get into the issues with the school, the whole thing really starts to warp your mind a little bit because apparently it was closed down at the time. The school had horrible water damage. The numbers in the classrooms didn't match the numbers by the door. And to me, it is just so bold for them to stage these events at a school that wasn't even being used. It just seems like the easiest way to get caught. But talk to us about the school itself. Well, let me just go one step backwards, okay? Remember, Who declared all of those children, remember, eight minutes, 20 children dead, six adults, and the shooter killed himself in classroom 10? Who declared all of those children and teachers legally dead within 10 minutes that morning? When only in Connecticut a licensed doctor can make the pronouncement of death. Again, there is no documentation whatsoever who declared all of them legally dead. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about the school, remember, when you walk up to the front of the school, as a school administrator, I have never in my 32 years in education ever, ever seen a filthy and deplorable school like Sandy Hook Elementary School on that day. And the photographs that were taken were taken by the Connecticut State Police Forensic Crime Scene Investigator. These were not somebody from the outside. These are crime scene photos that show a deplorable and filthy school that's used as a toxic waste dump. They had the highest level of asbestos, the highest level of lead paint, the highest level of PCPs, 
the entire groundwater under the school was contaminated. And you know where that came from? The flood they had prior. Who would send their most precious child to that type of filthy school? Right. And that is one thing you can see pretty clearly in the footage. They have a lot of aerial shots and you can see that the roof is just not in any condition to house children all day. And of course, there's also apparently no handicap ramp, which makes the whole building against code. And it's just such a curious thing. All these red flags that are very easy for you and I to see that they would do something like this in a school that wasn't active. It just blows my mind. You know, when you when you watch Hollywood and the movies they make today, every movie has to have a hook. And the hook means at the very beginning, they got a hook here. And how they hooked all of us across the United States and across the world is they use children and teachers as prompts. I mean, think about it. Each child was shot three to 11 times, 20 children dead, six teachers. You know, the, the shooter kills himself. I mean, that is a hook in itself. And it makes people watch television 24-7. You know, I mean, they can't get away from the TV because they want to see how this thing is going to unfold. That is a hook. And they hook this with our emotions. And any movie that you watch today, I mean, I'm watching a movie the other night. I'm crying at the end of the movie. It's a dadgum movie. It's not real. But they've done it in such a way they know how to touch our lives. And that's exactly what they did with Sandy Hook. Well said. Yeah, it is all about that emotional hook. And I mean, I grew up in a small suburban town. And if an elementary school was closed down, it's like everybody in a 10-mile radius would probably know about that. There's nearly 30,000 people in Newtown. So that is such a weird issue for me, even though I can see the evidence. But we can't even look at it further now because the school has been bulldozed down, right? Well, it's absolutely destroyed. But you know what? The things that, that really touch me, I'm a Catholic. And I actually flew up to Newtown, Connecticut to meet with a Catholic priest member, the most truthful man in Newtown. Mm -hmm. I actually went to St. Rose Lima Church to meet with a Catholic priest because being a Catholic, I could not believe that on the national news, he was telling the FBI agent who said, Father, they were standing at the front entrance of the Sandy Hook Elementary School right early that morning, just as it unfolded. And the FBI agent says to the father, uh, Robert Wise, he says, Father, do you want to go inside and bless the children? Nine of those children were from his parish. Now, Greg, what Catholic priest tells an FBI agent, no, I do not want to go inside and bless the children and teachers? He said, I need to go up to the Sandy Hook Volunteer Firehouse, and I need to be with those grieving parents. That goes against everything we're taught in a Catholic church. How does a Catholic priest walk away from that responsibility? Very curious thing indeed. It's almost as if something has to be up with the whole town in this situation. I've heard a lot of rumors of strange things like satanic cults and pedophile priests in the area. I guess I would ask if your investigation has turned up anything about Newtown itself. Is there a reason that the, this town would have been chosen? Now, remember what we said earlier in your program is that I only look at Sandy Hook, from the time I arrived on that school campus, I can tell you everything there is. But I got to add on to the St. Rosalie Church. When I left the rectory to find to see Father Wise, he refused to see me. When I got back outside to my car, it was raining pretty good. There were police officers waiting for me at my car. And I got a trespass warning that I could never ever, ever return to St. Rose Lima on or near the property. Now, have you or your listeners ever, ever or know anybody that's been trespassed from a Catholic church hmm. being a Catholic? How do, you, how do you trespass a Catholic from a Catholic church? I mean, I've never heard that before. Yeah, that's another one of those details. It just seems like they want everybody to be quiet and put the lid on this thing. But Maybe, I guess, we glossed over a couple of other points worth making if we're really going to make the case to people who are still on the fence. But given your expertise 
Where are some of the other areas where you saw problems with the protocol or procedure when you examined what was being reported on TV? Well, remember I told you I developed an active shooter response so we can evaluate it? Right. The first 10 minutes from the first call that comes in, our job is to get there as quickly as possible and neutralize the shooter or shooters. Then the next 50 minutes, if you get every medical resource, paramedics, EMTs, trauma helicopters, you get them inside to save lives. You get them there. And here comes the point, Greg. They never, ever allowed a paramedic or EMT to go inside that school all day long. How is that even possible when you and I now know that they transported children and teachers to the hospital? But they never let the paramedics or EMTs in. How is that possible? Hmm. Yeah. And also in the footage, I saw this everyone must check in sign, which was kind of strange and spoke to some type of foreknowledge. I mean, did that strike you as odd or is that a common thing to see in these situations? Well, it's very, very odd because I got to ask the chief of police, Mike Kehoe, at a hearing, which he was under oath as to who put that sign up. And he said, I don't know who put it up. And can you imagine you're the police chief? They have this huge traffic, huge traffic sign. It says everyone must check in. He has no idea how it got there. Well, think about this one. Everyone must check in. Well, is he everyone? Did he check in? And, and, and then it begs the question, what if you don't check in? Are you going to be arrested? I mean, think about it. That's a directive. Everyone must, must is a directive that if you're there and if you don't sign in, what are the consequences, Greg? Not good. You're going to get fired. Okay. So I wanted to know who everyone was. So I filed a for a Connecticut Freedom of Information request. I want to see a copy of that logbook to see who checked in. When did they check in? And you know what? To this day, four years later, they refuse to allow me to have a copy of it. That's a public record. See, so that in itself, again, why are we as people not angry that they don't comply with the laws of Connecticut? Why are we not challenging them? Why are we the people so afraid to ask? It can't be just me, Greg. I'm an old man, <laughs> but I need help. I need people filing FOIA requests demanding to see that logbook because it will expose them in the biggest RICO fraud that this country's ever seen. Wow. And that's not the only public record that's missing or sealed, right? There's actually quite a few. Everyone that I've requested, okay, for an example, provide me a copy of the company, certified company, who was contracted to remove all of the biohazards from inside the Sandy Hook School. You got to remember, there are 26 people who died in there, all that blood, brain matter, brain tissue, bodily fluids. Well, somebody had to be hired by the school board to go in to sanitize it. Four years later, they refused to give me those documents. When I request a copy, a FOIA request, provide me a copy of the helicopter, Connecticut State Trooper Helicopter 1, the radio transmission and transcript for that day. Four years later, I can't get a copy of it. That's a public record. They are hiding so, so many public records that we as a people have a right to know. And Greg, I shouldn't have to go out and hire an attorney. Those are public records that they're supposed to provide them in a very, very timely manner. I spent over $80,000 trying to get public records. I've been up to Connecticut 24 times. These people have made my life sheer hell. But you know what? I am not going to go away. Mm. Well, that is what's so interesting. And people should take note because of your expertise. You have the knowledge for what's typical in these situations, what paper trail should be in place, what records should be accessible. So that's the kind of stuff that the layperson just isn't going to know. But when you stack it all up together, it is very concerning. I guess, is there anything you can say regarding who did write this script, who would have had the coordination to set something like this up? Well, I think when you look at a capstone exercise, which I think this was, 
I mean, this takes about two, two and a half years of planning. There are major companies that were hired to write the script. And all you have to do is read the script. I've actually got a copy of the script. You know, here's my email. Wolfgang, W-L-F-G-A-N-G dot Halbig, H-A-L-B-I-G at Comcast.net. I'll send you the script that was used by the Newtown, Connecticut Police Department that day. Wow. Listen, I'm willing to give you the script because anyone who's listening to you today, you can take that script, take it to your local police department and let them verify it, whether that is exactly how they would respond. It is the biggest BS I've ever seen. It's a scripted event. Well, could you elaborate perhaps on what a capstone event is for people who are unfamiliar? Like who runs capstone events and how are they defined? Well, there was a lady named Sophia Smallstorm. I would have never known about the word capstone. She said it. It went over my head. And then I watched her video again and I, I understood it. Capstone is the highest level exercise from Homeland Security. It starts at the president's desk. But the only way that a capstone exercise can ever function is a whole community event. So think about what I'm saying here. A whole community event. One of the biggest arguments all across America and the world is, well, how could so many people be involved in this? How, you know, the churches, the funeral homes, the doctor. I mean, how can so many people be in there and lie to the world? Well, it's a whole community event. And if they don't sign those non-disclosure agreements as a community, it could have never happened at Sandy Hook. It starts at the president's desk, Eric Holder, FBI, the governor of Connecticut. It goes all the way down to the local police department, churches, funeral homes. Everybody is involved in it. And I think that's what blows people's minds is how could they get so many people involved? Yeah, it definitely is a curious thing for me. And you mentioned the governor. He did have a quote that was a little telling where he said something to the effect of we were prepared for something like this happening in our state, which is a little curious and a bit of a red flag. Well, think about it. Here is the governor, lieutenant governor on the national news conference. You know, after the event unfolded at about one thirty-two that afternoon, he tells the world on national news, well, the lieutenant governor and I were spoken to that something like this might happen in our state. Well, you know, governor, okay, so you're telling the world that you and the lieutenant governor were spoken to, that you knew about something happening like this, but you didn't tell anybody. And then when I confronted the governor in his office in Hartford, Connecticut, I actually put a camera in his face and asked him, governor, who told you that something like this might happen in your state? He said, I never, ever said that. You got the wrong person. Now, here's the governor lying. Absolutely. And that is an aspect of Marty Leeds' documentary, Dear Wolfgang, is he has that footage where you have the camera in the governor's face saying he never said that. And then Marty cuts right to that very quote. So it's right there in black and white. But see, again, where's the national news media? Where are all these great investigators who are chasing good stories? Why did they not chase that story and say, hey, governor, did you not say that? Why did you say that you didn't say that? I mean, see, again, the national news media, I believe, is so complicit in Sandy Hook, it just boggles the mind. But you know what? It's going to get exposed. It will be exposed. It may not be in my lifetime. The truth will come out. And I think that is going to be the biggest wake-up call for all Americans. When they see what they did in Sandy Hook, I think it's going to be huge. And I think people are going to go to jail. And I think it's going to be a better country once this is exposed. Oh, yeah, it definitely would be. And you've mentioned... On your journey, you've put the camera in the face of the Connecticut governor. You've tried to talk to that Catholic priest. Have you gone around to any other people in the community or the police department or the fire department who have maybe been honest with you to any degree, or has it been stonewalled all across the way? Stonewalled all across the way. I've actually went in front of the Newtown Connecticut school board members, not once, 
but twice. And I picked the second time for a special reason. I saw where they were going to recognize children for excellence. I mean, that night I went there, Greg, that school board room was packed with parents, grandparents. I mean, balloons that you couldn't find a place to stand or sit. And I picked that night to do my three-minute public input. They had cake. They had fruit punch. I mean, they were celebrating children's excellence. And that's what we're all about in education. When children do good, we reward them. We honor them. We bring them to the front of the school board, shake their hands. We give them a certificate. So when I went down there, I asked him, why have they not to this day brought the 26 fourth grade children who sang at the Super Bowl February the 3rd, 2013? Why have they not promoted their excellence? Why have they not invited them to the board offices, shake their hands, give them a certificate, give them cake and punch? Invite their parents, their grandparents for a picture opportunity. Do you know to this day, Greg, they've never, ever brought those 26 children into that school board office? I told them, I, I am disappointed and I'm embarrassed that they're school board members. Yes, I thought this was one of the most interesting aspects because people probably remember that the Super Bowl halftime show the following year, we saw kids singing that were apparently Sandy Hook survivors. But what else can be said about the Super Bowl situation? Where are those permission slips? Who were those kids? Well, that's part of, again, Connecticut Freedom of Information request. These are, remember, they were introduced by CBS Sports and the NFL as the fourth graders, 26 fourth graders from Sandy Hook Elementary School Choir. They were survivors that day of that tragic shooting. They sang in the before the football game started with Jennifer Hudson. And 110 million people worldwide watched their appearances. And you know, to this day, as you and I are speaking, we have never seen them again. We don't know their names. They have never sang again. They've never, I mean, how do, how do you make 26 fourth graders disappear? How do you silence them? You kill them? You bury them? I mean, sad enough, they say we got 20 children dead. Now you got 26 children missing. That's a total of 46. Where did those 26 kids go to? See, why is it nobody asking? Why doesn't the national news media find out where the 26 children are? Isn't there anybody in law enforcement that might be listening to you actually care about the 26 children? Somebody should. I'm not going to give up until I find those 26 fourth grade. I'm going to find them. I'm getting close, but I'm going to find them, Greg. Oh, man. I hope you do. And that is another element to the whole thing. That day of the shooting, we have a lot of parents and kids being interviewed, and it really drives me nuts. How'd they get these kids to lie? It's easy to get adults to lie about things, but they got little kindergarten age kids saying that they're scared or that something happened. And I guess they just told them to say what they said. Well, you know, I think, again, part of writing scripts is drama classes. Again, you make a great, great point, Greg, is how did they get all of these little children, kindergartners, first graders, second, third, how did they get them to lie on camera? And, you know, here's the other thing. This is the day of the shooting. What parent, what parent is going to stick their child in front of a national news media camera and talk about the worst event that ever happened? And you know what? You can't just stick a child in front of the camera. Those parents actually have to sign an agreement allowing them to get in front of that camera. You know that? Mm -hmm. You don't just stick them in front of a camera and say, go talk. They have to mic them. The parent has to sign the release. See, all this is pre-planned. These people, hey, it took a couple of days for them to get this thing organized and uh, on the national news. Hmm. Are you suggesting that perhaps some of what we saw was filmed earlier and not necessarily live with everything else? I've heard some people say that. Do you get indications that that might be true as well? Absolutely, because you see one girl named uh, Urbina, her last name is Urbina, you see her twice being interviewed by a national news camera, and in one clip she says, I was in the gym, my teacher told us, you know, to get in the corner and hide, 
And then in another clip from another news media, it's the same girl, same clothing. And she says, our teacher told us to run to the front office and hide until the police came. And then they, the police told us to run outside. See, two different stories, one girl. Now, who made her say those things? Whole different script. And somebody had to sign the release. See, this is where I think the average person doesn't realize what happens behind the camera, is these children have to, and their parents have to sign the release. And again, I think we should challenge every one of those releases and question the national news media about how they did it. Mm-hmm. And so let me ask you about another element here, and that's Alex Jones and Infowars, because I know you've been on his show four or five times, but recently he did make a very public retraction of his Sandy Hook position. I was sort of surprised by that, but what's your relationship with them been like since that? I mean, especially now. Well, I'm very disappointed in uh, Alex Jones and his Infowar program because I thought he was a man of truth. You know, they used to call me. I have never, ever called them, you know, prior to me being on there. They called me. We need you on the show. We need to do that. And I said, sure, I'd be glad to do whatever you need. And I think what happened in Hartford, Connecticut, when Rob Dew, he's one of the people, a reporter on the show, when his uncle, John Dew, came on the show, he was actually in the hearing. He's a retired 34-year veteran of the FBI in New York. And he told me after the hearings, he said, Wolfgang, you really are under something. You've got him in a box. And I think ever since Rob Dew talked about his uncle and how his feelings are about Sandy Hook, I mean, Rob Dew talked about it on Infowars with Alex. Ever since then, there's not another word about us and what we're doing. It shut it down. I always find that odd when a person defends the alternative angle for so long and then just drops it. Because when you wake up to the conspiracy here, or in other cases, it doesn't just go away, you know? No, it doesn't go away. Actually, you know, it's like working a puzzle. When you find a piece and you can't get the answer, you keep chasing it. And it's amazing that, you know, every crime has its own puzzle. And that's how we're trained in law enforcement. We put the puzzle together. And Alex Jones, I think he, I don't believe he's a very honest and truthful man. Wow. Well, so let's get into that trial itself that you're going through. I suppose we should give a little bit of background to it. But where did this start getting into the legal realm for you? How many times have you been in court or legal proceedings with this case? In this case? Well, the only only proceedings I've been involved with is uh, having to fly up to Hartford, Connecticut and appear before the uh, Connecticut Freedom of Information Commissioners because all of these public agencies are refusing to give me the documents. But I think the commission, the commissioners appointed by the governor, they (laughs) I think they're part of the conspiracy, too. And let me tell you why. Just one reason. Dash cams. I requested a copy of the dash cam from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. for Lieutenant Cinco. And the reason I did that is because this is a lieutenant on the day of the incident, December 14, 2012. He's working at a construction site, you know, off duty. He's getting, he's in uniform, police car, but he's working at a construction, controlling traffic. He's got another officer, you know, a couple blocks down named for gold. They're all they're doing is off duty work. Okay. And then when the call came out that there were shots fired at the Sandy Hook Elementary School, I know what our protocol is. When lives are at risk, we break away from our off duty job and we respond to the shots fired. Right. These two people never leave their job. How is that possible? So what I wanted to see is Lieutenant Cinco's dash cam. So I did a public records request, and I get a dash cam. They send me one, but it's for an Officer Mulhall. Now, Greg, did I ask for Officer Mulhall's dash cam? You did not. And it's got the wrong name on it. It's got the wrong uh, uh, car number on it. They disconnected the GPS. See, the thing that I love today about dash cams, it was developed for officer safety. 
When an officer out on the road doesn't respond to radio communication within seven, eight, ten minutes, and we have concerns, the dispatcher can click on and see where that car is located right there and then. Every car that had a dash cam in Newtown, Connecticut that morning, all of their GPSs were disconnected. You have to do that intentionally. So why would all of the cars do it? See what I'm saying? Yeah. It goes against their standard operating procedures. Right. That's a huge red flag and something that I wasn't really aware of. So when I'm in front of the commissioners and we're appealing the fact that we never got, you know, Cinco's dash cam, the attorney for the Newtown Police Department says, Mr. Halpin got a copy of the dash cam. Hmm. And so the commissioner said, Mr. Halbig, did you not get a copy? I said, I got a copy, but I said, it's not officers, Lieutenant Cinco's dash cam. And they said, well, you got it. <laughs> and I said, did you watch commissioners? Have you watched it? Have you watched the dash cam video? No, we have not. But then how can you tell me that I got it when you haven't even looked at it? See, it is so corrupt, so crooked. I have never seen so many liars who are adults. And these are professional people. They all have a code of ethics. And whatever happened to honesty? That goes right out the damn door in Connecticut. Right. We have them. It's like I got them on the hook. We hooked them. It's just now how do we finish them in the courtroom? Amen. And let me ask you, have you had conflict with Leonard Posner leading up to this lawsuit? No. Uh, the only thing that's ever happened, remember, the one thing I've learned, remember I, remember I had to do the death notifications? Mm -hmm. I have never, ever questioned or bothered any parents. I never requested any crime scene photos of the bodies or the blood. I just don't care about that. But all of a sudden, you know, I got a phone call from Leonard Posner saying he wants to talk to me. He left a message, but I didn't return the call. And then he's in my gated community trying to come to my house to talk to me. I didn't let him in. I just don't want to have contact with parents. And I, I just think, you know, the emotions and what they can do. No, I just don't want to do that. All I want to do is how do we respond to active shooting? Okay. That's my investigation. And so Leonard Posner then filed a lawsuit, a civil lawsuit claiming that I inflicted emotional distress upon him. And so that's where we are. He filed it in Lake County, Florida. Hmm. And I did watch a little bit of video from the courtroom. I guess it's some preliminary proceedings for this trial, but it was about 15 minutes of Posner's attorney desperately trying to kick out the reporter from the room, the journalist from the room who was recording the events. And it's very cringeworthy just to watch him grasping at straws to the judge saying, well, we need to get these guys out of here that are recording this. And the judge is like, well, I don't understand why it's a public trial. These are journalists. And he's like, well, be because I don't want them here. It's not fair. And it's just like, as a lawyer, he's not even making very good legal arguments, but it does seem like you got them scared. They're a little desperate and they do want this to be quiet. Well, November the 7th is going to be a two and a half hour hearing in a courtroom. It'll be a videotape. It'll be public. We'll make it public. But I think that is going to be the most telling hearing because there's going to be a lot of questions asked and answers have to be given. I cannot be honest with you. I'm ready to go to bed just so I can get to November 7th. <laughs> yeah. And. I know you said, you know, you weren't trying to dig too much into the parents, but can we say anything about Leonard Posner or the son Noah in question? Obviously, it would be super sad if you were wrong and the father of a dead child was going through this. So I guess, can we lay that to rest? What can you say to make listeners a bit more secure in the idea that Leonard Posner is lying about the death of his son at Sandy Hook? Well, I think part of my responsibility, once you have a lawsuit filed against you, I think you, as a defendant, have a responsibility to find out who Leonard Posner really is. I have never seen anyone that has so many last names or different names. Hmm. Leonard Posner, Len Posner, Lenny Posner, Len Osner, O-S-N-E-R, uh, Eliza Posner. I mean, this guy owns companies as Eliza and Leonard. I mean, 
This guy has more names than anybody I've ever seen. And then he buys guns under the name of Eliza Posner. Well, we're going to find out who Eliza and Leonard is. He's got concealed weapon permits. I mean, and in Florida, he's got three different driver's license. I mean, that's why I can't wait for the deposition, because I think the biggest part right now is we need to find out who the plaintiff is and whether he is a true person or not. And then we'll go from there. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. I mean, yeah, it is just so curious. I want to make sure people feel comfortable supporting you in this, but it is just such a off-putting position to be kind of calling a person like this a fraud because it's just such a sensitive issue and you do not want to be wrong. Well, I do not want to be wrong because I tell you what, uh, if I am wrong about everything I'm, I'm doing today, if they can prove me wrong, Greg, as a 71-year-old, I'm going to run as fast as I can to the nearest mental hospital, and I'm going to enroll myself for long-term mental health care. Because you know what? If I'm wrong, think about how many people I've hurt. Listen, I've hurt your listeners. I mean, here I am. You're allowing me a forum to where I can speak and share information. I don't want to be wrong. I can't afford to be wrong. And so I have a plan. If I'm wrong, I'm going to get mental health long-term. Now, think about, and if, as you brought up Noah Posner, how does his picture end up in Pakistan, Peshwa? How does that picture even get there? And it's not that it's just a picture. There are posters everywhere, visuals. There are posters. He has a different name. And so it's going to be part of that trial. It'll come out during the trial. And I demanded a jury trial. So I just want you to know that, too. Right. That was going to be one of my questions is what about the judge? You know, being a law enforcement officer, you know that trials aren't always on the up and up. They can be twisted and manipulated to come to certain conclusions and results. And I just wondered if you felt the same way, if you were worried about the integrity of the trial. Well, I'm, I have faith in the people. Remember, I always talk about we the people. I want to be judged by we the people. And when we, the people, which I say to jury, when they see all of the reasonable doubt that you and I talked about today, I think that jury will be angry. I think the jury will be furious. And I only hope and pray that, you know, they'll see it for what it is and then find me innocent. Because, you know, the burden of proof is on them. They're the plaintiff. They have to prove that I inflicted emotional distress and I hurt Mr. Posner. So I haven't seen anything that he's shown yet that I've done that. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. And it is unfortunate that you're going through all this. But as you mentioned, the legal process here does yield some major opportunities. Can you elaborate on how you plan on spending your time with Leonard Posner and his deposition? I really don't want to do that because my attorneys are going to handle that. Fair enough. Fair enough. But it is an opportunity, broadly speaking, to get deeper into details and get some questions answered. Well, absolutely. He has to. When you go to a deposition, that's like having him on the stand in the courtroom. Okay. Mm -hmm. First of all, he has to raise his right hand. Please state your legal name for the record. I can't wait for that one to be answered. Mm. <laughs> and. Of course, this is another attempt to shut you down, but it is curious why they draw so much attention to this. The lawsuit seems like a fairly risky play, wouldn't you say? Well, I'm surprised that they even filed it because I think it's just to embarrass me, to drain me of money. This thing has cost me a lot of money with attorney fees. And if you go look at the docket, all the motions, all the hearings, they're wearing me out with all of the motions. And so... I'm just glad it's coming, you know, to the end. And uh, I I'm really, really looking forward to this jury trial. Mm -hmm. Right. That's an interesting point that they're stringing you along, making you pay more and more in legal fees to defend yourself as this comes to a head. And there's a possibility. I've heard you mention that they could pull out. Of course, we don't want that because we want you to get that opportunity to ask those tough questions and your lawyers as well. But that might be something to watch out for, that in the end they say, oh, we got to pull the plug. This is getting way too hot. Well, the next day you'll see a countersuit being filed. Mm. I'm not letting him off the hook. He started it and I'm going to finish it. Mm. 
And as we're kind of getting to the wrap up portion here, your online presence has been attacked and destroyed pretty heavily, hasn't it? Well, I've been threatened so many times and they're threatening my family. If I don't get rid of my website, that, you know, my family are going to suffer dire consequences. So I had to get rid of San Diego Justice. I had to get off of Facebook. They really don't want me on Twitter. Actually, they probably get frustrated when they hear that I'm your, on your program. They really do not want to hear my voice out there. And then if you look at Google or YouTube, they are trying to take down every video that's out there dealing with Sandy Hook. Somebody has got some clout. And somebody is trying to do everything they can to manipulate YouTube and Sandy Hook. I just don't know who has that clout. The government, I think. (laughs) Right. That is the curious question. And is there anything people can do to support you or anywhere people can donate or anything like that since your website has been taken down? Well, not only have they taken down my website, they've taken down my GoFundMe where people could donate. They took down my PayPal. They took down my Razzle. They took down my Bitcoin. There is no way that you can donate to me except if you want to do a money order or you want to write a check. But it's got to be made out to Sandy Hook Justice because I don't want somebody coming after me saying I'm stealing or committing fraud. Okay. Right. And if you want to help me out with the legal expenses, and guess what? It's not just donate. You're investing in the truth. I I will tell you what. I think you'll be part of history. If you donate into the legal fund, you're actually going to be part of history. Mm-hmm. It's going to be exposed. And just make it out to Sandy Hook Justice, 25526, Hawks Run Lane, Sorrento, Florida, 32776. My phone number is 352-729-2559. And look forward to talking to you. Ah, right. And you have been incredibly forthcoming with that kind of information, phone number and address. It's not something we see all that often. So, I mean, if anything speaks to your credibility and your seriousness, I think that would be it. Well, I am who I am. I've spent a lifetime in public service and I never thought I would be involved in something like this. I thought I'd be spending my retirement with my grandkids. But as we started out, I think you would do the same when you have people come to your home and threaten you. And these are police officers, people that you trust and you've worked with in your lifetime. I think that there's more to the story. Mm -hmm. Well, I just have to say that I'm super impressed with how you've handled all of this and how dedicated you've been. It's a day like today where I feel honored to be able to use this platform to contribute even in a small way to at least shining a spotlight on what you're going through. And I hope it does make an impact and motivate some listeners to rally around you because it's a noble thing you're doing. Well, hopefully there's a lottery winner out there somewhere listening to your show. <laughs> mm-hmm. Listen, this is our country. Listen, we cannot, we cannot, we must not allow our government to control our minds and our hearts. That's not that's not our government's job. And if we're not careful, it's going to be too late. We're going to, we're going to lose this country. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. And I wish you the best of luck on the upcoming trial. I do hope you get to make good use of the opportunities for questioning that you're ultimately validated and held in high regard as a man committed to the truth. I know you won me over. Is there anything else you'd like to tell the people before I let you go? Any other last things they should know? Well, they got my email, anything they need, don't hesitate. And hopefully you'll have me back after the 15th of November. Absolutely. I'm waiting eagerly to see what happens there. But again, best of luck. Keep fighting the good fight and be careful out there, man. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. You got it. Bye-bye. Take care. Oh my Lord, people. Wolfgang Halbig, bit of a heavy, high-stakes episode today. And it only really happened because Marty Leeds was so on me to do it, which is not a bad thing. I'm not complaining. It's just that a lot of things in life fall apart without proper follow-up, and Marty did not let that happen. I know for a lot of people, it's probably really hard to plant your flag on one side of this issue or another because of the implications, even after you've heard about all the inconsistencies, but if it helps, I do want to say that Wolfgang did not pursue this interview at all. Like, I had to ask, ask again, get Marty to ask, leave him a voicemail, etc., 
And I'm only telling you this to make you aware that Wolfgang is genuinely not a guy seeking media attention. He's just seeking the truth. And the only other guest I've ever had that was this nonchalant to the point of almost being hesitant and resistant was Judy Wood. And that, in my mind, speaks to her credibility, too. She even gave me a quiz to make sure I had read the book for crying out loud. But given Wolfgang's background, I think it's pretty arrogant to just dismiss him. He's kind of the perfect guy to be delivering this message. But that's also probably why he's being sued. So do try to keep abreast of his trial on the 7th of November in just a couple of days. The day before the next Higher Side Chats live event with Tinfoil Hat, actually, which is November 8th at the La Jolla Comedy Store. I gotta shoehorn that in somewhere. But again, it is a tough issue. Like I said to him, you don't want to be wrong here. And he seems like a great guy. You gotta use your own judgment, but hearing a person talk for almost two hours is a huge help when we're trying to make up our minds. Granted, this episode did come in just a little bit short, but I think we go long way more often than we go short. And so we just got to deal with it. It does happen sometimes. The content here is way more important. I think we can all agree. So it's great that we can be flexible when we need to be. You know, it is weird for this to be one of the very few issues that Alex Jones has walked back. This and Pizzagate are really the only two I can think of. And a lot of you know I listen to Rogan's podcast, and none of us are perfect, but something that he cites all the time when defending the official position on Sandy Hook is that he once read an article that was written by a guy who, quote, used to be a conspiracy theorist until he lost one of his kids in that shooting. And I just want to yell into my phone, isn't that the perfect article to craft in this situation? You don't know who this guy is. But how convenient that he wrote something that checks all the boxes to make us look bad, and then you're just regurgitating it as if this is someone you know. You can't take anything at face value. And it's so much like the situation where the shooter went into Comet Ping Pong, in my eyes, because it's like, conspiracy angles are bad, dangerous, and hurtful. That's the message. Not the underlying issues we're trying to expose here. Don't even look at those. Don't even consider them, because they're just so damn dangerous, hurtful, and bad. I mean, we're dealing with people who have been fine-tuning propaganda and mind manipulation for decades. We are not smarter than them in a lot of cases. You know what I mean? It's just very arrogant to think that you got something all figured out. We are dealing with games within games within games with true lifetime career professionals. We are going to be wrong sometimes. But if you have a skeptical eye and you look at something like that article that Rogan cites all the time and you see exactly how that would fit in to a propaganda campaign to keep people away from this alternative angle, it becomes a little more transparent in those cases, I think. And I'm not even trying to be absolute here overall, but honestly, if my kid was shot at school, I wouldn't give a fuck about what people said on the internet about it. That's like focusing on a flea bite when you have a goddamn Demogorgon tearing into your torso. I'd be like so crushed that it would just be the last thing on my mind, but it's a convenient way to make people feel guilty for asking questions. But I do have to say that everything here is so far removed from me. I have never been to Sandy Hook. I've never seen the school. I have to use that classic caveat that this is all alleged. And I would never want to pile on a grieving parent. I'd never harass a parent or try to attack them in any way. But this lawsuit has to be discussed for anybody who's interested in this case. I'm just the guy who asks questions. Questions that I think need to be asked. And I know of no more respectful or level-headed way to do that than what you got today. And now for the old routine. As you know, there is a plus portion to this in every show. This one includes aspects of the situation like the chase in the woods thread from the events of that day, the details about Wolfgang working with the Trump administration, and some of the follow-the-money trails and the clues that they yield. But really, I wanted all the key information about the trial and everything to be public, so pretty much any time it was brought up, I just extracted it back to the free show. It's a little more chopped and screwed than the usual episode, but that's my problem. Also, do watch Marty's documentary, Dear Wolfgang. He is a badass for putting such a thing together, and it's really good. I know he's super proud of it, and he should be. Of course, as always, sign up for the Higher Side Chats Plus if you want to support the show and hear much longer episodes. 
You can also sign up through Patreon now. That is a new thing, but it's there. And again, live show with Tinfoil Hat, November 8th, right here in La Jolla. I will be doing stand-up, which should provide everyone a nice opportunity to use the bathroom or grab a drink in between the actual comics. And hopefully I'll see you there. Your move, crisis actors, fear injectors, and situation simulators. Your fucking move. Have a drink and a smoke. Listen to the cast. We shine a shiny spotlight, put criminals on blast. The pinstripe men of mourning and families of finance. DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild. The kids don't stand a chance. The kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't. The kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. We're looking for the answer to questions never asked. So we come to the Carwood for the higher side chats. The pinstripe men of mourning and families of finance. DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild. The kids don't stand a chance The kids don't The kids don't stand The kids don't stand a chance I said the kids don't The kids don't stand The kids don't stand a chance We try to get a glance We're working on the numbers Resistance must advance The pinstripe men of mourning And families of finance DuPont, Windsor, and Rothschild The kids don't stand a chance The kids don't the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. The kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. I said the kids don't, the kids don't stand, the kids don't stand a chance. <laughs>